May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My husband and I have developed a truly terrible habit. It weighs us down. It starts our days off at a low point. And sometimes, sometimes it even leaves us with these existential questions and just a sense of dread. Some days, some days, I don't know why I do this, I even engage in this habit on my own time, in free time, a few minutes to spare. And, I, and then I find myself wondering, why, why did I do that? Or, you know, there are days when we'll be doing this, and all of a sudden, I just have to stop. It's too much. I can't handle it anymore. What on earth is this terrible thing we do? You want to know? We watch the news every morning. All right, I hear you all laughing, and I know I, I made that a little dramatic there. But the reality is, the news without fail is filled with story after story of political wrangling or horrifying crimes or, of course, celebrity drama. And on those rare occasions, when it is not filled with all these terrible things, when it's not about Supreme Court controversies and congressional squabbling or tragic events like the, the tornadoes of the other night, on those rare occasions, then maybe they take the opportunity to look around the globe and see what else is happening. And then we get news like possible genocide in Ethiopia or a new COVID variant in Europe that's headed towards the US and gonna wreak havoc here. And it's so much. Do you see what I mean? It begins to weigh on you. And it's not just that I pick the worst possible news programs or websites. It feels like we're constantly surrounded by bad news. It's hitting us from every side. There are conversations all the time or new books or just dire predictions about the consequences of climate change, for example. Or everywhere you go, there's something to remind you that the pandemic is still ongoing. Maybe it's signs about wearing masks or it's vaccine uh, mandate protests or whatever it might be. There's always a reminder. And then there's the things we encounter where we hear news of someone we know who maybe is very ill or has had something terrible happen to them. And then there's everything in our own lives too. And if you try to respond to all these things coming at you from every direction, uh, if you try to think of ways to be healthy and safe and responsible, and you really try, pretty soon you'll find out that there is no way to be healthy or safe or responsible enough. For example, many of us, myself included, um, have chosen to have hybrid or electric vehicles to try and mitigate our impact on the environment, to try and bring down our carbon footprint. But did you know that the materials required for these vehicles come from supply chains that are rife with child labor? It seems like no matter what we do, 
No matter how hard we try, there is always some sort of side effect that we haven't thought of or never would have wanted to happen. And everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, it begins to seem like we are trapped in a system of oppression, corruption, conflict, and mortality. In the world and in our own lives. And goodness knows, the holidays have a way of bringing up all that personal stuff right to the surface. In light of all of this, it is easy to feel overwhelmed, afraid, sad, even to the point of despair. If this is how the world is, where can we find hope? The people of Jerusalem, to whom the prophet Zephaniah was speaking in our reading today, those people were also trapped in a world in which there was no justice and very little hope. The chapters preceding our reading are filled with Zephaniah recounting God's condemnation of Jerusalem's elites for their many, many sins, their callous cruelty, their persistent selfishness, their faithless idolatry. And even the people that we would expect to be the best of that society, the temple priests, well, they're no better. In fact, they're equally condemned for their glaring sins. The everyday people, meanwhile, if they weren't complicit in those sins, well, they were oppressed, shamed, and downtrodden by those who were. It's all too easy for us to imagine that they must have felt the sort of despair and sense of being trapped that we may feel, but even more. God, through the prophet Zephaniah, speaks out in condemnation again and again against a society that is built on oppression and injustice. He promises a coming judgment when the city of Jerusalem will fall and God's wrath will be made clear. This is the coming defeat of the kingdom of Judah and the exile of its people. But in the midst of this terrible litany of, Israel, of Judah's sins and the punishments to come, in the midst of this, the prophet Zephaniah suddenly changes tone. And that's our reading for today. For a moment, he stops declaring doom. And he begins to proclaim hope and peace. It's almost incongruous. In the verses we read today, he says... On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. Fear not. Why is it that the people of Jerusalem should not be afraid? I mean, Zephaniah has just told them how wicked they are of all the sufferings that the everyday people are currently facing and all the calamity that God is promising to bring in response to that. Why on earth would God then say, don't be afraid. It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, Zephaniah continues the next verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God himself will be with them to save them. And he who now condemns the sins of their society well, he will rejoice over them in his abundant love. Moreover, that love will give them peace. It will calm them. 
But it's not a calm, quiet, furtive love. No, this love is exultant. It's exuberant. God's love will overflow with delight and joy. It brings to mind, it brings to mind the most tender and powerful images of love that we have. Think about newlyweds delighting in each other's company or new parents cooing over their new baby. That is the sort of love, the biggest, best, fullest celebrations that we have. Think of your own life. Think of the memories you have that are the strongest memories of love. And then multiply it. That is what God is promising. That is the love that God has for his people. Now, this is not just a promise of some sort of passing emotional happiness. You're going to be really happy and I'm going to love you, but life will still be really hard. No, this is more than that. God promises that he will deal with those who are oppressing them. He promises that he will save those who are disabled and unable to participate in society. He promises that he will gather in, he will welcome the outsiders among them. Whatever it is that brings them shame, external oppression, implacable individual impairments, or social rejection, God promises that he will not only remove that shame, but he will bring them glory and praise. Everything that they will lose in the judgment he's promising, and more, God will restore to his people. What a word of hope. In the midst of their despair, what a word of joy. The fears that they must have been feeling about what God promised, about the things going on. God is answering those fears with a promise that must have been more than they could have even imagined, more than they could have hoped for. Is it too good to be true? It almost seems like it. Will God indeed do all of these wonderful things? Well, you and I have the advantage of being a little further forward in history. And we know that God not only kept his promises of judgment, Judah was taken into exile, Jerusalem fell. God not only kept those promises, though, but he also kept and continues to keep those promises of hope and joy and love. The people of Judah did return from the exile. They were sent back to their homeland some years later. And then many years later than that, the kingdom of God was inaugurated when God himself came down to dwell among his people and to save them. Jesus did heal the lame. Jesus welcomed the outcasts. And Jesus saved his people from oppression. But the oppression he saved them from was far greater than what they would have expected, some political salvation. Jesus did so much more than that. Yes, the Roman Empire was strong and was harsh, but the oppression that Jesus saved them from was stronger and harsher than anything from Rome. Jesus saved them from slavery to sin. He saved them from a slavery they could never escape, no matter how far they ran. He saved them from the judgment that their sins rightly merited, and he restored them to right relationship with God and one another once and for all. But again, the promises of God are so much more than they could have expected or imagined because 
He didn't just save the people of Judah or the people of Jerusalem. God kept those promises and extended them to all people. Jesus offers healing and restoration and welcome and salvation to everyone. Jesus is God's answer to despair. Jesus is God's answer to despair. And he's not just a lovely memory. He's not just this idea that we hold on to and try to think about when life is hard. He is so much more than that. Jesus, well, let me put it like this. In the midst of Advent, when we look back and remember the long, hard wait of God's people for the Messiah to come the first time, as you very well know by now in the third week of Advent, we're also looking forward to when Jesus comes back again. And of course, in the midst of that, we can't avoid thinking about just how long and hard our wait right now for Jesus's return is. And so it can be easy once again to fall into despair. The tone of Advent is penitential because we're reflecting on, on our suffering, on our unworthiness. In fact, if you look at the Advent wreath, most of those candles there are purple, and that's intentional. We don't just like the color. It's because it reminds us of Lent, the most penitential season of all. But I want you to notice something. The candle we lit this Sunday is pink. It's not purple. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. It's because even in the midst of repentance and fear and despair, we are reminded of the hope God has given us. We are reminded of God's promises of joy and salvation. And we are reminded that God is faithful to keep those promises. Those promises aren't just for the past. Yay, the exiles ended and Jesus came. That's wonderful and that's so good and I don't want to downplay that at all. But those promises are also for the future. And if God has been faithful, which he has, then God will be faithful again. I don't know where you are emotionally today. Perhaps some of you are in a place of just wonderful joy and contentment. And if that's you, I am so, so glad that that is the case. And I hope this can be a reminder for you that just increases that joy. But there may be some of you who are not in that place. There may be some of you who are in a place of discouragement, a place of fear, pain, maybe even despair. And if that's you, I want to speak particularly to you for a moment. You may, like me, feel overwhelmed. You may still be processing the news from Friday night and Saturday morning, or you may be facing Christmas without someone who you love dearly, perhaps for the first time ever. I don't know what's causing the situation you're in. But whatever it is, I want you to lift your eyes to Jesus. Find the fullness of hope in God's promises for you. For some of you, you may be in a place of secret fears. You may, deep inside, be afraid that the person that you really see yourself as, the person you try to hide from the world, that people will find that out and they'll leave you. Or you may be afraid that you don't have what it takes to deal with whatever you're facing. 
that you're not strong enough to be there for those who depend on you. Or perhaps maybe what your real fear is, is that God isn't with you after all, and that all the hopes you've built up ring hollow. But if that's you, when you find yourself filled with those terrible fears, the words of Zephaniah still ring true. Fear not. The Lord your God is in your midst. He says, I will change your shame into praise. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will bring you home. We don't know when Jesus will return, but when he does, every cause we have for fear or shame or despair will be removed. It will be no more. God promises welcome and restoration. God promises a new heavens and a new earth. And if you want an answer to climate change, you're not going to find one that is better than that. God promises that swords will be made into plowshares, the weapons of war into the instruments of flourishing peace. God promises that love will no longer end in grief and that the griefs that we bear, those griefs will be comforted and that every tear will be dried. God promises that we will no more live in the darkness of a complicity we cannot escape, that we will no more live in the darkness of a world where fear and oppression and conflict always seem to win, that we will no more live in the darkness of being reminded and faced with our own mortality and that of those we love over and over again. God promises that instead of remaining in that darkness, we will live in the light of the Lamb who was slain, that we will live in a world where there is no more sin, where there is nothing to fear, where there is peace between all peoples, and where we will be in the presence of our King and our Savior forever. As the prophet Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This present darkness will not last forever. Despair does not and will never have the final word. The light has dawned. The promise of God is for judgment, yes, but so much more for restoration and for salvation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.